0: Great to see each of you here tonight, great to have visitors in our presence. As we often say, you are our guest, and we are fully aware that there are places that you no doubt could be tonight, maybe needed to even be tonight, but you've chosen to be here in the house of God, studying the Word of God, and that's wonderful. I know that God is pleased, because any time that we focus our attention on him, His Word, and what it says concerning how we need to live and get to heaven. That's important. Be turning, if you will, to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. We're going to spend a little bit of time there tonight. And while you're doing that, allow me to tell you, already planned for this sermon. But even as I was walking out of the hotel tonight, headed this direction... One was checking in. I was standing there, had my Bible in my hand. I had it laying there on a table as he said uh, something in Spanish that I did not know what he said. But I understood and he pointed toward the Bible. I said, the Bible? He said, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. He said something else inquiringly or somewhat like a question. And I said, I thought he said something to do with Catholic. I'm not sure what it was, to be blunt about it. I said, I preach for the church of Christ. He said, church, Christ, I'm not familiar with that one. I said, well, we, we try to do exactly what the Bible says. And we've continued our conversation. The church that we read about in the Bible, the church that Jesus built with his own blood, purchased with his own blood. Oh, okay, okay, he said. I'm not sure what all he understood. I'm not sure what I understood, anything that he said, but it reminded me, if nothing else, in a world religiously that is filled with confusion, in a world where there are so many choices, would to God that we had the privilege of being able to talk to the world and tell them, This, the holy word of God, tells us about the plan of God to save man by way of the church, the church of Christ. The church that we read about in the Bible. I had an opportunity some years ago there in Pulaski, Tennessee, um, one that I've never had before. On a Monday morning, I had a phone call, and it was he identified himself. He was with the Baptist church there, one of the two major ones. He said, Would you mind coming and preaching to us one Sunday night soon? I mean, I literally wanted to just kind of say, Well, no, wait a minute, I'm not hearing this right. But he said, We'd lo- we want to learn in our student union what the various religions teach. Steve and I, it was his name, Steve and I continued to talk and I inquired concerning what limitations. He said, there's none. We just want you to come and tell us what the Church of Christ believes. I went to my elders because I normally, I certainly believe that on Sunday I need to be assembling with the people of God. But they made the statement that you need to go. Maybe the only time that they... Those in that assembly will hear the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. I went that night, my wife and I by ourselves. Others wanted to go. We discouraged that. We didn't want it to look like we were coming in mass or ganging up on them. My wife and I went in there. And I must admit that uh, it was intimidating a little bit because the responsibility, the obligation that was upon my shoulders of making sure that I expressed kindness and compassion, but at the same time stood for that which is right in truth. I chose the subject, the church that we read about in the Bible. I told them in the very beginning that I'm not here because I'm angry with you. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here as someone that knows it all. I'm here because of the privilege that I have, and I'm treasuring that opportunity of talking to you about the Christ who purchased his church, the church that we read about in the Bible? And I began to talk about the plan of God in the very beginning. I, I, I encouraged them to consider what Isaiah chapter two and verse two and three said, Daniel two forty four, Joel chapter two verse twenty eight through thirty two, the prophecies that were made in the long ago five, six, seven hundred years ago. Concerning what was going to come into existence. Jesus came to earth by way of virgin birth. Lived among men. And at age 30 approximately began his earthly ministry. And during that time, Matthew chapter 16 verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus also, by Mark's account of the gospel record, said in chapter nine and verse one that there are some of you that are standing here which will not taste of death until the kingdom come with power. In other words, some of you are going to still be alive at the time the church begins. Various times, including Mark 9 verse one, it spoke about how power will come upon you. It shall come with power. As we then can look in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, for an example, we read about upon the day of Pentecost. In chapter 2, the idea of power came upon them. They were able to speak in tongues, a language that they did not know. It wasn't gibberish, but it was just they did not know this language, but they were speaking as if they did, miraculously. And Simon Peter and the other 11 stood up and began to preach Jesus Christ how important it is for us to understand Acts chapter 2 as the hub of the Bible. Everything prior to that time looks forward to it, talks about it in future reference. I will build, there will come, the kingdom shall be established. But after Acts chapter 2, everything looks retrospectively back to that. In other words, it is in existence. They were added to the church, various statements that were being made to establish beyond a shadow of a doubt the exact time that the church began, the church that Jesus said that he would build, the church in which salvation is found. And that brings us to Ephesians. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul, being the author, writing to a congregation of the Lord's people, And he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. An examination of the various phrases that we find in him, in whom, in Christ, etc., helps us to identify where those spiritual blessings that are found what spiritual blessings are we talking about? Forgiveness of sin, redemption, reconciliation, justification, etc. Key words as we walk through the pages of God's inspired word. Here, Paul is saying to them, we are so blessed because we are in him, in Jesus Christ, and all spiritual blessings are found therein. Now, we can deduce from that there are no spiritual blessings from God the Father that are found outside of him. I cannot be saved, washed, redeemed, reconciled in a body or religious body of man. I cannot start my own concoction of a religion. And I could possibly utter the words and promise you salvation, but I couldn't deliver. But you see, Christ said, and he said those things concerning what one must do to be saved. John 8, 24, believe on me or else you'll die in your sins. Luke 13, 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall perish. Matthew 10, 32, confess me before men or or I will deny you before God. Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is All these are the words of Christ. As he spoke about and had opportunity even prior to the establishment of the church, while Jesus was still on earth, he spoke about that which we must do in order to be added to that church. Back to Acts 2 for a moment in our minds. Simon Peter and the 11 stood up and they began to preach Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news, to an audience that very likely some of them had been in Jerusalem 50 days prior. When Jesus appeared before Pilate, And Pilate saying, I find no fault with this man. Why have you brought him to me, as it were? And they cried out when he asked, what do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. Very likely some of the same ones that were there on the day of Pentecost were there maybe crying out for his death, his crucifixion. Pilate would say more than once, I find no fault. He took and washed his hands. Take him and do with him what you want. According to John 19 and verse 1, they took him and they scourged him. <clears throat> scourging is called the intermediate death. Many did not survive the scourging. They would take a man and pull him kind of over and strap his hands in a way to where his backs, his buttocks and his legs were exposed and they would beat him with a flagellum as it was called multiple strips of leather, rock, glass, whatever it may be that was jagged that would inflict harm and hurt were tied on the end of those little pieces of strap. The Roman soldier had learned how to stand, I'm told, according to historians, how that he could stand with his feet apart, and he would be able to come down with that whip and jerk it at the right time as that would jaggedly tear into the flesh of Jesus. Jesus. There was no limit to the number of stripes at their judgment. And finally he stopped. They unbound him. You can only imagine the deteriorated condition physically of the Savior. But even in that condition they required of him that he carry that beam up. Calvary, about a quarter of a mile, a beam that weighed about 75 to 100 pounds. And he fell under the weight, partially up the hill. They summoned someone out of the audience to help him. And up on Calvary, the soldiers had learned how to do that. They laid him down on that cross beam and they took their knee most of the time they just said and they would place the knee here where the hand could not be moved and they took that stake that nail and they drove it into its hand Jesus not uttering a word they did the other hand They had learned how (coughs) to take one foot and put it on top of the other, and take one nail (coughs) and go through both feet. They had learned how to do it where the knees were kind of bent. Because if they were outstretched, death would come soon. They didn't want that. They made it possible where the knees could be bent where. If we can stretch our minds to imagine the horrendous effort and pain of pushing against the nails in the feet in order to get some air in the lungs and then to slump back down. According to the testimony of the Word of God, He hung there not five minutes, 10, 15, 30, 60, but six hours. Seven statements were made by Jesus on the cross, ultimately saying, it is finished. According to John chapter 6, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And at that time, he was able to say, It's done. It's completed. The night before, in Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had prayed to God the Father and said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, thy will be done. He knew what was coming. He was 100% human. He was 100% divine. He knew what was about to take place. But he wanted to do God's will. Luke chapter 1 and verse 21, Matthew 1 also, we're told, Luke 19, 10, he came to seek and save the lost. I tried to help those in that baptist denomination to see the Christ and see the price that he paid for the church and to see that it was even hurtful or insulting for man to come along and create a new one something different A different doctrine, a different teaching, a different manner by which we can be added to that church, a different type of worship. And to literally itemize and go through these things concerning worship, for an example. And how that in this, the Word of God, we find specific reference to what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit wants us to do in our worship. He wants us to sing. Almost a dozen times in Scripture we find sing and make melody or sing with the understanding and various other similar statements. He did not say make music. Had he done so, we would have been at liberty to sing or play or sing and play. But because he specified, he excluded all other forms. Who are we to be able to come along and think that we have the right to be so audacious as to think, okay, I know what God said, but I'm not going to do it that way. I don't want to do it that way. I like a piano. Well, I do too. Have one in my home. These old fingers can't play it, but I have one I enjoy hearing the grandchildren but it doesn't matter what I like. You see, one opinion is just as good as another, but it's not opinions that determine what is right and righteous in the sight of God. I must conform my will to his will. That's what Jesus said in a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when he said, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, like master and rulers, what that means, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, Shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done these marvelous works? In verse 23 of Matthew 7, Jesus himself said, And I will say unto you, I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you, but you fell. I never knew you. You may be religious. You may be a good person morally. You may even do it with a clear conscience. You may do it as sincerely as you possibly and genuinely as you possibly can. But to those who were religious and Jesus said, I don't know you. You're not my children. You're not a part of those that are in Christ. Drop on down to verse 7 in Ephesians 1. Paul would write, in whom, that's similar to in Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood. They had not received the redemption. They were still in their sins. They had not contacted the blood. We contact the blood in baptism based upon our faith, repentance, confession, and then in baptism in whom we have redemption paul would say they had not contacted that but he goes further the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace and no matter how good cornelius for an example in acts chapter 10 was a devout man prayed gave alms and he was lost he was told to be baptized acts 10 verse 48 No matter how sincere Saul of Tarsus was, you can read about his life, zealous and fervent and devout. I mean, there was none equal to him. He was the best of the best. He was breathing out threatenings and slaughters in the church. He was wrecking havoc in the church. Read of that, Acts chapter 9. He was on his way to... He was on his way to a city where other Christians were worshiping to capture them—men, women, and children—to either kill them or put them in prison. All the while, thinking that he was doing exactly the will of God, thinking that what he was doing—in fact, in Acts 23 and verse one—it says he had lived in all good conscience. I did what I did, thinking they was right. But on the road to Damascus, when that light shined down, and Saul said, Lord, what will you have me to do? I tried to point out that night, Paul believed in Christ at that point. He called him Lord. But I asked them, did you notice that didn't save him? Faith alone doesn't save. If it did, Paul would have, Saul would have been saved right then and there on the road to Damascus. But instead, what will you have me to do, Lord? And he, he, he was told to go on into Damascus. And the exact phrase that we find in the King James is, and thou shalt be told what thou must do to be saved. He was blinded by the light, went into Damascus, led there preacher came to him and began to preach Christ the account of that is found in Acts 9 but Paul remarks about it kind of rehearses what actually took place and that's found in chapters 22 and 26 it's interesting to hear what Paul himself now Saul name changed to Paul it's interesting to hear what Paul said in reflecting back upon what it In Acts 22 and verse 16, Paul would say, and the preacher said to me, why do you wait? Get up. I'm paraphrasing, putting it in my own words. Why tarryest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. King James Version. Get up. Don't wait any longer. Don't delay anymore. You believe in Christ, but you've got to be baptized in order to have your sins washed away. And that is the point of Salvation. If you parallel the two times, the two occurrences, Saul and those on the day of Pentecost, let's go back to that now in Acts chapter 2, in our minds, Peter and the other apostles are preaching. Boy, don't you know that it hurt those people. Verse 37 says, and they were pricked in their heart. It means cut deeply. If indeed there were those that were A few weeks earlier, crying out for his death, guilty, the blood on their hands. And now they were hearing about the Christ who had raised from the dead and had appeared to over 500 people. There was no doubt that indeed he was the Son of God, even the centurion soldier when the darkness and the veil was rent. And and he said, truly, Acts 20, 28, truly this was the Son of God. And now at the hearing of the preaching, and they are literally pricked in their heart, and they cry out, what shall we do? Peter and the apostles did not tell them to believe. They believed already. Peter and the other apostles did not tell them to confess him before men. They were doing that already. Peter and the apostles told them to do the two things they hadn't done yet. That's repent and be baptized, verse 38, for the remission of your sins. According to verse 47 of that second chapter of Acts, the Lord added to the church daily such as those that were being saved. Even those that had cried out for his blood, even those that had sinned, even those that had violated almost every imaginable thing and committed such atrocious crimes. The blood of Christ washed those sins away. And the Lord considered them and added their names to the church, considered them their children. Go over to chapter 5 in this book, this great book, Ephesians. I want to come at this chapter backwards a little bit. I want to drop down to verse 32. We often talk about husbands and wives, how wives are to be submissive and husbands love. All that's good. That's what it says. But I want to notice verse 32 where it says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The main subject was not husbands and wives. That was a parallel thought that he was using. Now let's go back and begin with verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore is the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be unto their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify, in other words, deliver, and cleanse it, the washing away of sins, with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church that was planned before the world began, The church that God inspired writers, the Old Testament prophets, to give details. Over 300 of them detail prophecies hundreds of years before they would be fulfilled, but minutely. I mean, exactly fulfilled. He was born in Bethlehem. He was nailed to a cross, a type of death that was not even known at the time that the Old Testament prophet Spoke and told? What was the odds that such could happen? That there would be a man born in Bethlehem, as Micah said. That every prophecy, there was a man back in the 1950s, his name was Peter Stoner. He was a professor at a college. He was not a believer at the time, initially. But he began to be intrigued by all of the prophecies. And he thought by the law of deduction, as it were. In other words, what is the possibility, the law of probability, that anyone besides Jesus Christ could have been the one He had 12 different classes of his college classes, about 50 in each class, that he charged with testing the law of probability. And he only gave them eight of the prophecies. And they tested it. They did research how many babies, for an example, was born in Bethlehem at that particular time. How many different ones and this and that, all of any way that they could cross-reference and come to any type of law of application of probability. Twelve different classes. Peter Stoner took their answer and made it more conservative, presented it to some of his associates, professors. They reviewed it and they made it even more conservative. They came to the conclusion that it was one and 17th part. That's so many zeros after a number that it's staggering. But Stoner knew that us normal folks like myself would have no really comprehension of what that number meant. He said that if you took that number, the probability of all eight of those prophecies being fulfilled, and you represented that number, one to ten to the seventeenth part, and you let that number be represented by silver dollars, and you put them over the state of Texas, that it would cover the entire state two feet deep. But he said in order to make it personal from the standpoint of that one man at that one time being exactly all of these things that had happened, been prophesied six, seven hundred years prior actually occurring, it would be the same thing as taking one of those silver dollars and taking a magic marker and putting an X on it and putting it somewhere in the entire state of Texas and having a blind man go and pick up that one silver dollar, the first one he picked that begins to make a little bit of an impact on me. Brother Tom Holland told me about that on the way to Florida on a trip a few months ago. I secured the book, I began to read, and I was amazed at a man that was not a believer who became a believer because of knowing that Jesus of a virgin birth came to save man born in Bethlehem died on a cross, purchasing the church, according to Acts 20, 28, fulfilling the prophecy, I will build my church. And some of you that are standing here, to whom I'm speaking at this time, he said, will not die until it begins. And of which Paul and so many other writers say he purchased it. He presented it a glorious body. And that church is in existence today. You see, when I do today, what they did then, I can become today, what they became then. And as kind, the tone of my voice, attempted to say this, in the greatest kindness, and love possible. I said, he did not, die and purchase a Catholic church wasn't in existence 600 years later. A Methodist church, a Baptist church, a Lutheran church, and I covered several of them. I said we can read in the encyclopedias on Google or wherever we want to go to find out exactly when they started and the principal individual that was behind it. can't read about it here in fact right the opposite and I tried to spend just a few moments alluding to even the words that Jesus spoke of those that were teaching another doctrine like the Galatians who had departed from the teaching of Christ Paul would say I'm so amazed that you're teaching another doctrine or another gospel, which is not another, he said, but you have perverted the gospel of Christ. Even the words of Christ in Matthew 15, 7 and following, how that there were those even at that time who were in vain, worthless, empty, of no value, in vain you were worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, not of God. And Revelation tells us we're not to add to or take away from the Word of God. We're to speak sound words, Titus was told by Paul. We're to preach the Word, Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. We've got to do things in Bible ways, not deviating from that, having biblical authority for what we do in order to please God and to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Before I conclude the lesson, let me tell you how that night ended. They had asked me before if I would be willing to take questions after the lesson was over. I said, sure. Little did I know what I was getting into at that point. When Mr. Mercer, the preacher there, thanked me for the lesson and said are there any questions hands went up all over we were able to cover about 11 of them best i remember we had it recorded and there were questions good questions got instrumental music about the thief on the cross he wasn't baptized and yet jesus said he would be in paradise I had anticipated as I was sitting there before it began after being asked if I could have questions or even after before I thought well in the discussions afterwards, what am I going to say in this and this and this, try to have my ducks in a row. I had heard just a few weeks before an illustration that I used concerning the thief. They said, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. And I paused about that long and I said, you know, It really bothers me. George Washington never had to pay income tax, and I do, and you do. The man shook his head, and what's that got to do with it? I said, it does bother me. George Washington didn't pay income. And the man himself spoke up and said, well, the law wasn't in effect yet. I said, yeah. The law wasn't in effect That was prior to Jesus' death. The church wasn't established yet. And thus, Jesus had the right to say whatever he wanted to to that man. But that does not negate what we must do to be saved. We were never treated more special, Ladon and I, than that night. There was about 400 present standing in the back wall. I think most of them came up there and spoke to us. Uh, I don't know of any that left. It, it was amazing, honestly. I wish I could say that we converted them. I can't. We planted the seed. We're told that it won't return void. What's the purpose of tonight is not to tell you about some night some years ago and what happened and what I did, it's to rehearse what we have from the old law to the new law coming into effect, and even today, the church that we read about in the Bible, the church that Jesus shed his blood for, bore those stripes, cleanses us by his blood. He bought the church. I love it. I would like to think that we would die for it, even as many of those Christians did in the first century. Because as Paul would say for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Paul would elsewhere tell the Philippi brethren, I'm I'm, I'm between a rock and a hard place, that's my words, because I have a desire to go on and be with the Lord, which is far better. But I also want to be with you. Thank you, dear people, for listening so well. If you're not a member of the church that we read about in this Bible, you can be tonight. If you're not a faithful child of God, pressing toward the, prize of the, the mark of the prize of the high calling, with your goal literally set above, and knowing that one day you're going to be with the Savior, you can return to faithful service. And if you are a child of God that right now is faithful in this, don't you change a thing? You keep on keeping on. You work toward that time when you hear the trumpet, if, you're, if the Lord comes while we're still here, or until the time that you draw your last breath and you know that heaven awaits you. Our life is only about that. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, won't you come as we stand and sing?